Okay, if you have your Bibles with you, please open up to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts, chapter 17. As we continue on in our journey through uh, the book of Acts here on Sunday mornings. Now, there are many phrases that are commonly used in the English language uh, because they're found in Scripture. For example, we often talk about the blind leading the blind. That's Jesus, Matthew chapter 15. We talk about uh, making something or doing something by the skin of our teeth. That's found in Job, chapter 19. Uh, Pride comes before a fall. A lot of people say that. It's Proverbs chapter 16, verse 8. Uh, There's nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9. The writing's on the wall. That's Daniel chapter 5. And another one of those phrases is found in our text here uh, today in Acts chapter 17. Uh, And that is turning the world upside down. Uh, When I was a kid, we used to watch a a television program called The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yes! (laughs) 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 And of course, there's that famous uh, rap and uh, Will Smith, who went from the hard streets of Philadelphia to the plush life in Bel-Air, and his rap said, you know, my life got flipped, turned upside down, Right? Of course, it's the same uh, reference. And it's found here in Acts chapter 17 and verse 6. Uh, If you just look there in your Bible, Acts 17 verse 6, it says, When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Now that phrase, uh, turned upside down, It's a translation of one uh, word in the Greek test. It literally means uh, to change from from a a standing position facing up to a position uh, facing uh, down or to turn turn something over uh, like this uh, cup of coffee here. Um, This is the right way up. I think we all understand that. If I take the lid off, there's nothing in it, don't worry. Now it's upside down. But if there was something in it, what would happen? It would be a mess, right? Everything would be a mess. And that's precisely the idea here. That was the illustration I wasn't intending to use. That's what happens when your Bible's falling apart. Note to self. I need to rebind my Bible. <laughs> get around to it one day. I'll get around to it. And so, anyhow, uh, the people in the city of Thessalonica, uh, they accused Paul of turning the world upside down through his preaching. They thought that Paul was changing everything. 
There he was preaching the gospel and, and everything was changing. And they said, what's going on? This can't be. They're turning the world upside down. They're changing everything that we know. And that was meant to be a criticism. In fact, it was really probably the greatest unintentional compliment that has ever been paid. Because that's precisely what needed to happen. It's what needs to happen today. Except, of course, they were a little bit wrong in their metaphor. They thought the world was already the right way up. And that Paul and Silas were turning it upside down. When in reality, the world is already upside down. It's a mess. And it desperately needs to be turned the right way up. And that is precisely what was happening through the ministry of Paul and Silas. As they preached the gospel, everything was changing because lost sinners were being changed, transformed. Their lives were being turned from being upside down to being the right way up. Through the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And of course that is precisely what Jesus Christ came into this world to do. He came to take this world which is a mess and our sinful lives which are a mess and to turn them the right way up. To change our lives, ultimately to change the world. He's doing that now by his spirit in and through his church. He ultimately will do that finally and completely when Jesus Christ returns to this earth and establishes his kingdom on this earth. Now, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been following Paul on his second missionary journey. Uh, and over the last couple of weeks, we've been, been looking at his ministry in the city of Philippi, there on the northeastern uh, part of uh, Greece or the area of Macedonia. Uh, and you'll recall that he had a rather eventful time in the city of Philippi. He uh, there was a time of great opposition. He faced opposition from the devil, from the world, uh, and from the flesh. But he also experienced great victory. Uh, victory over the devil, victory over the world, victory over the flesh in and through Jesus Christ. Uh, Lydia was the first Christian convert on the continent of Europe. Her and her household were saved through the ministry uh, of Paul. Uh, and then they were subsequently arrested and beaten and imprisoned. Uh, basically for preaching the gospel, but God uh, performed a great miracle. Uh, an earthquake happened that opened the gates of the, the prison and released their chains. And after the Philippian jailer was miraculously saved, along with his household, uh, Paul uh, and Silas were released, and they headed back to the house of Lydia, uh, where Lydia and all her household were, maybe the Philippian jailer and his household were. Uh, a church had been established in the city uh, of Philippi, and so the work in Philippi, at least for the time being, had been completed. And so, what does Paul do next? Now, you'd imagine that Paul may have thought, you know what, our time in Philippi was pretty much a nightmare. You know what, we've been beaten, you know, we've suffered, we've been imprisoned. You know, we got bruised, you know, in agony here. You know, I, th I think we need to call it a day. I think we need to go home. I think we would have understood if Paul would have done that. Uh, but no, that's not what he does. Because beginning in chapter 17, verse 1, Paul continues on on this missionary journey 
to really the next major city, the city of Thessalonica, and then on to the city of Berea. Uh, and that's where we are in our text today in Acts chapter 17 and the first 15 <coughs> verses. So let us read uh, our text, Acts chapter 17, uh, beginning in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as was his custom, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Then some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And so when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then the brethren immediately uh, sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. But when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. And also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Uh, Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would bless your word to each and every one of our hearts today. Lord, give us those ears that we need to hear, uh, what your spirit has to say to us. Give us hearts that we might understand, that we might receive. Lord, knowing that you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Uh, And Lord, how we need your grace in our lives. And so Lord, help us, Lord, to humbly receive your word, that we may be encouraged and strengthened and built up. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so we're on Paul's second missionary journey. And when we're talking about all these places and cities and, and so on, it's, it's helpful, I think, to, uh, to have a map. Now, where did it go? 
Herodias. Now, Paul, on his second missionary journey, he started there in Antioch. He traveled through the area of South Galatia, Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, and Antioch, the different Antioch, Pisidian Antioch rather than Syrian Antioch. And then he couldn't go south to Ephesus, and he couldn't go north, and you remember the Holy Spirit led them to Troas. They went on the sea over the water to Neapolis and then came to Philippi, which is where they spent uh, time, as we said, in chapter 16. Uh, Now they move on uh, southwest to the city of Thessalonica and then a bit further on southwest to the city of Berea. Uh, After that, in chapter, um, the rest of chapter 17, he will head down all the way south down there to Athens, And then we get to chapter 18, they'll go to Corinth, uh, and then they'll travel over the sea back to mainland Asia Minor to Ephesus, uh, where they'll spend uh, a short time before heading back on the boat to Antioch, uh, and then subsequently beginning the third missionary journey, in which he spends a lot more time there in the city of Ephesus. And so uh, that's where we're heading uh, in the weeks uh, ahead. Uh, But this morning... We are in uh, Berea and Thessalonica. Uh, And Paul, on his ministry in Berea and Thessalonica, were accused of turning the world upside down. And indeed they did, at least from the perspective of the unbelievers. They were really turning the world the right way up. And they did so for two reasons emphasized in our text. Uh, And here's our outline. First of all, the world was turned upside down or the right way up because of the preaching of the word. And that is emphasized in their ministry in Thessalonica. Uh, Paul, in his time at Thessalonica, uh, was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke emphasizes the message that he preached, essentially Christ and him crucified. And so the first reason the world was turned upside down is because of the preaching of the word. Uh, The second reason the world was being turned upside down was because of the hearing of the word. And that's emphasized in Paul's ministry in Berea in verses 10 through 15. Because when Paul was in Berea, yes, he preached the word, but Luke emphasizes in the text the fact that the Bereans heard the word And they heard it with an open mind and an open heart and thus received the word gladly and were saved. And when you bring the preaching of the word together with the hearing of the word, with an open mind and an open heart, that is when things begin to happen. That is when God begins to work. That is when things begin to change. Lives begin to change. That is when the world begins to be turned the upside down, or as we know, in reality, uh, the right way up. And so, firstly, we see here in the first nine verses, Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, the emphasis being on the preaching of the word. Now, take a look at verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, the first thing 
uh, to notice there in verse 1, and those of you who are very observant and were following very closely in chapter 16, the first thing you'll notice is a change of pronoun. You'll remember back in chapter 16 and verse 12, uh, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, started uh, using uh, a personal uh, pronoun, first person plural, we. Uh, all the way through the book of Acts, he'd refer to them and they, and all of a sudden, Acts 16, verse 12, he started referring to we. Why? Because Luke had joined uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy on the missionary journey uh, from Troas going to Philippi. Uh, but now Paul, Silas, and Timothy are leaving Philippi. Uh, Luke reverts back to the third person, they, uh, indicating to us, of course, that Luke did not accompany Paul, Silas, and Timothy on this leg of their journey. Uh, and so the team at this point now is down to three. It's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. That's made clear to us all the way down in verse uh, 14. Uh, we don't know why Luke stayed behind, incidentally. Um, we know actually, when we get to verse 20, that Paul and Silas meet up with Luke again in Philippi, and many assume that uh, Philippi was the city in which Luke lived, uh, and that may explain uh, why that was the case, but we don't really know. Anyhow, um, the second thing that we notice uh, in verse 1 is the place that they went to. They went through the city of Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica, as we uh, have seen there, is right on the north uh, eastern um, area of uh, Greece. Thessalonica was actually a, a seaport city there on the coast. In fact, it still is uh, today. It was about a 62-mile walk from Philippi, and so it would have taken a few days. Uh, and so those other two cities are mentioned, most likely uh, because uh, the missionary team spent the night uh, there in those cities on their way to the city of uh, Thessalonica. Uh, now, Thessalonica uh, was a thriving city uh, back in those days. It still is uh, today. It was founded 315 years before Christ by the Greek king Cassander. It was named after his wife, who was the half-sister of Alexander the Great, uh, Thessalonike, I think her name was, and uh, she, he named the city after uh, his wife. Uh, and so that's where they are at the moment in the northeastern uh, area of the land uh, of Greece. Now, significantly for the story, at the end of verse 1, we are told that there was a synagogue of the Jews in Thessalonica. Unlike Philippi, in which there was no synagogue because there weren't uh, any uh, Jewish men. There was a Jewish population in this city of Thessalonica. And so what did Paul do when he got to Thessalonica? Well, according to verse 2, Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now, Paul went in first to the synagogue, which is obviously where the Jews were gathering on the Sabbath day. We're told that he went there 
for three Sabbath days, which, of course, is the Saturday. So he was there for three Saturdays with the Jews in the synagogue in Thessalonica. Uh, Now, we've already uh, covered this in previous uh, studies as to why Paul would go uh, to the Jews first. Uh, It was for several reasons. There was a practical aspect to it. Uh, Paul was a Jewish rabbi, uh, and Jewish rabbis, when they visited synagogues, were customarily given the opportunity uh, to speak to the congregation, and so it was an easy open door, an easy starting place uh, for Paul uh, to preach the gospel. Uh, There was a spiritual aspect to it, of course, because Jesus was the Jewish uh, Messiah, and it was God's will and purpose that the gospel would go first to the Jewish people, and so uh, Paul was uh, following that. Uh, And there was a personal element to it, of course, as well, because Paul himself was Jewish, uh, and his heart's desire was to see uh, his brethren, his Jewish brethren, uh, come to faith uh, in Christ. Uh, So much so, in Romans chapter 9, he expressed that um, he would himself be accursed if his brethren would all believe. Such was his heart for his Jewish brethren. And so for all these reasons, Paul would always start uh, in the synagogue uh, in any given city, providing, obviously, that they're was one. Uh, But notice specifically what Paul was doing in the synagogue. We are told in verse 2 that he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now the scriptures that Paul is referring to Uh, Here, of course, is the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, what we would refer to as the Old Testament. Uh, And notice uh, that Paul did three things with the scriptures and the people. He reasoned, he explained, and he demonstrated. He reasoned, he explained, and he demonstrated. That word reasoned uh, literally means to discuss, to exchange ideas, to come to a firm conclusion. Uh, In other words, Paul went in and said, yes, uh, thank you, I'll have the opportunity to speak. I'd like to discuss with you what the scriptures say. And so no doubt Paul read a passage and said, what do you think this means? And they said, well, we think it means this. And Paul said, well, actually, it really means this. And they said, well, are you sure it means that? And yes, let me show you. You see, it was a discussion. They reasoned from the scriptures, bringing them to a conclusion. Uh, and, And that's a good thing to do, incidentally. In fact, that word is used several times in the New Testament uh, of believers. That is what we are to do together. We are to reason with one another. We are to discuss uh, the scriptures. We are to exchange ideas so that we may uh, learn together and grow together in the knowledge of the word and in the knowledge of God. And that's one thing that we do every week in our home groups. Uh, We open up the scriptures and we we, we discuss the scriptures together. Uh, And it's a very uh, good way uh, to do things. It's valuable. Uh, And it's important. And so that's the first thing that Paul did. Uh, Secondly, he explained to them, verse 3. He explained to them. Uh, That word explain means, uh, it refers to the process of opening up fully. To bring clarity and understanding. And so he explained the scriptures. He opened up the scriptures in order to bring clarity and understanding as to the meaning of of the scriptures Uh, and that's of course what we uh, do I hope uh, every Sunday morning when we gather that's what I hope to do to open up the scriptures 
to bring clarity and understanding with obviously the help and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, taking the word of God and opening our hearts and, and applying it to our hearts and lives. And so the explaining of the scriptures, the opening up of the scriptures to bring understanding and clarity is vitally important as well. So Paul reasoned and he explained. But thirdly, he demonstrated. He demonstrated. That word to demonstrate literally means to give evidence or to provide proof. Now, what was Paul reasoning about? What was he explaining? What was he giving evidence of? Well, he was reasoning, explaining, and demonstrating that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Paul's goal and purpose there in that synagogue in Thessalonica was to prove, to demonstrate to the Jews that were there from their own Old Testament scriptures that the Jewish Messiah firstly had to suffer and die and rise again. And Jesus, he came and suffered and died and rose again. And therefore Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. Therefore Jesus Christ, he is the Messiah. So you need to believe in Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, in order to receive forgiveness of your sins. Now, what passages Paul used uh, to reason, to explain, and to demonstrate, we're not told. Uh, we could assume because there are many, many Old Testament passages uh, that Paul could have referred to and no doubt did. I mean, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 49, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 52. Uh, but perhaps the most complete of uh, the Old Testament passages, speaking of the suffering death and the resurrection of the Messiah, uh, is found in Isaiah 53. Because Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, prophesied of the coming of the Messiah, saying that he would come, that he would suffer, that he would die for our sins, and that he would subsequently rise from the dead. Let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3, the prophet Isaiah said this, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And so you see there the prophet Isaiah writing 700 years before Christ was given the most complete description of the sufferings and the death of Christ. 
You see, Christ was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was cut off from the land of the living. And so clearly, the Old Testament foretold the sufferings and the death of the Messiah. Why? For our transgressions, for our iniquities. Jesus Christ suffered and died for our sins. Taking the penalty of our sin upon himself. So that we don't have to pay that penalty, but we can receive forgiveness because Jesus paid that penalty for us. And so the suffering and the death of the Messiah was unmistakable and clear. But Isaiah doesn't end there, of course. He goes on in verse 10 to say, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. And he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. You see, the Messiah was to suffer and was to die. But yet, after his death, in which he accomplished the work of salvation, by which we can be forgiven of our sins, then after his death, Isaiah said, he, the Messiah who had died, will see his seed. His days shall be prolonged. He shall see the labor of his soul. How can he see the labor of his soul if he's dead? Because he would be alive. You see, the resurrection is right there in Isaiah chapter 53. So I've no doubt that Paul reference that passage and maybe many others as well in demonstrating look the old testament tells us that the messiah had to suffer and die for the sins of the world but he wouldn't stay dead he would rise from the dead in victory conquering sin uh, and death and thus fulfilling the promises and the purpose of god Uh, and so to put it in a nutshell what was paul doing Uh, well paul was simply describing who the Messiah was and what he came to do. Look, the Old Testament says the Messiah will suffer, die, and rise from the dead. I'm here to tell you about this Jesus. He suffered, died, and rose from the dead. Therefore, Jesus, he is the prophesied Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. I'm here to tell you about Jesus, who he is, and what he has done. That was the heart of Paul's ministry. That was the heart of Paul's message. That is the heart of the gospel. Who Jesus is and what he has done. Paul later said uh, in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. He said, I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. See, that was Paul's goal. Simply to preach Christ and him crucified. Not to wow them with eloquence. Not to wow them with excellency of speech or wisdom that he could come up with. 
His goal was simple, to preach to them who Jesus was and what he came to do. And that is precisely what we are to do as believers. That is precisely what every preacher of the gospel is to do. It's a simple task to preach who Jesus is and what he has done. And that is so, so, so important because as Paul said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? He was not ashamed of who Jesus was and what he came to do. Why? Because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. You see, it is so important that we preach Christ and him crucified because that is the heart of the gospel and it is only the gospel that has the power to save, to change and transform a person's life. We must preach Christ and him crucified. And so that's what Paul did. And then in verse 4, notice the response. Well, the first response was that some of them were persuaded, verse 4. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. And so some of those who were present at the synagogue, they believed. They were persuaded. They received Jesus as their Messiah, as their Lord and Savior. A great many of them were devout Greeks. Those would have been the the God-fearers who would have been present. They weren't Jewish, but they worshipped the true God of Israel. They were leading women. Uh, And another man, as we see in verse 5, Jason, he was likely uh, a Jew. Jason was the common Greek name for the Hebrew name Joshua. And so it's assumed that Jason was uh, a Jewish guy whose name was Joshua. He was referred in Greek to as as Jason. But a great multitude uh, believed. And they believed because Christ was preached. Not because Paul was so eloquent, not because Paul was so intelligent, but because he pointed them to the word of God and declared to them Jesus, who he is and what he has done. And that's really important. Because salvation doesn't come into a person's life because of the preacher's eloquence. It doesn't. It doesn't come into a person's life because of the preacher's charisma. Now, there's nothing wrong with eloquence, and there's nothing wrong with charisma. If you're eloquent, be eloquent. If you're charismatic, be charismatic. But it is not the charisma or the eloquence that saves a person. It is the gospel. It is the gospel. And I think sometimes in the church we can place too much emphasis on eloquence and and uh, charisma, you know, charisma. Uh, and, and Christ and him crucified seems to get left out. And you may be able to draw a crowd, but you're not really establishing a church in the true sense of the word, apart from the gospel. Apart from the gospel. And that's a real blessing and an encouragement to me, because it means that I don't have to know everything. I don't have to be the most eloquent person in the world. I don't have to be the most charismatic person in the world. All I need to do is to preach Christ and him crucified. That is where the power is. It is in the message of the gospel uh, itself. The quote I reference often 
uh, here, something John MacArthur once said, if you know enough of the gospel to be saved, you know enough of the gospel to be a missionary. Now, it's good to learn and good to grow in our knowledge of the word, and it's good to receive training at some times. Uh, but if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, and you know enough of the gospel in order to be saved, you know enough of the gospel to be able to share what you know with somebody else. And you think, well, they might ask me questions that I don't know the answer to. What do I do then? Well, don't worry about what you don't know. Just share what you do know. That's it. Someone says, whatever hard question, you, it's always a good response. Well, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that question. But let me tell you what I do know. I do know God loves you. I do know God demonstrated that love in sending Jesus Christ into this world to die for you, to take your sins upon himself so that you could be forgiven of all your sins and you can be reconciled back to God. That is what I do know. We can talk about all that other stuff, (laughs) but that is the most important thing. That is the central thing, and that is something that we can all do as the Holy Spirit leads and as the Holy Spirit enables us. Uh, And so many believe that verse 5 There were those who rejected. Notice verse 5. The Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, they took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in uproar. (laughs) Think about that. There were people, religious people, in the synagogue. They didn't like what Paul said and they didn't like what Paul was doing. So they decided they would go find all the evil men in the city and set them on Paul and Silas. (laughs) Unbelievable. But that's what they did. They gathered the mob. And what was their intention? Well, it wasn't good for Paul and Silas, that's for sure. And that wasn't the first time, of course, this kind of thing happened to Paul. You remember on his first missionary journey in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, it didn't go too well in Philippi either. This was pretty much par for the course for Paul. But then in verse 5, they attacked the house of Jason, one of the Jewish converts, and sought to bring them, that is Paul and Silas, out to the people. But when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, Though these, are, uh, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Now, of course, they were saying that there was another king. Jesus is the king of kings and the lord of lords. But they weren't trying to overthrow Rome. Their goal wasn't political. Their goal was spiritual. Uh, And so Paul and Silas, they weren't a threat to Caesar. But then there's that phrase in verse 6, the thing that they didn't like. They were turning the world upside down. They looked at what Paul and Silas were doing, and from their point of view, everything is changing. Everything is changing around us, and you know what? We don't like it. We don't like everything changing around us. We liked it the way it was. I'd imagine if Paul heard that phrase, and I'm sure he later did, he would have rejoiced that the world was changing. Obviously so. Before everybody, through the power of the gospel. 
But these people, they thought that the world was being turned upside down. Because to them, the world was the right way up. But of course, they were looking at it wrong. The world wasn't the right way up at all. The world really was upside down. It was a mess, as the world is today. Because you see, God created a perfect world. A world with no sin, no suffering, and no death. A world with no social problems, no political problems, no economic problems, no personal problems, no relationship problems. Everything was perfect as God intended it to be. That is the world the right way up. But then sin entered the world. And that is when the problems began. That is when suffering and death became realities of life. That is when social problems began, political problems began, economic problems began, personal problems began. Those things all becoming the natural order of things in this world. See, Paul and Silas weren't turning the world upside down. Sin had already turned the world upside down. It's how it was back then. It's how it is today. The world is a mess, yet many people don't see it. They see sin as the right way up in many ways. But Jesus came to change things in this world. To turn this world back to the way it should be. And that's the work and the purpose of God in this world even today. He's working in and through his people. Taking that which is a mess in sin and making it right in Christ. But one final thought, and, uh, and we'll pause here in our text and we'll pick it up next week, is that there's a lot of upheaval going on in the world as we speak. new American president was inaugurated on Friday. A lot of people not happy uh, about it. You know, you go back to the, to the financial crisis of years ago and uh, everyone's protesting and you know, rebelling against the system. You had the whole Brexit thing. and You know, there's, there's a real kind of move of sort of rebellion against the authorities of the world kind of going on uh, today. And it's interesting because people, uh, maybe, you know, more now than for many years, are looking at the world and thinking, you know, something's wrong. Things need to change. They look at the politics. They look at society. They look at their own lives and think, you know, something's wrong here. We need to change. We need something different. And I think in all of that looking, in all of that looking unto politics to solve the problems, looking to changes in society to solve the problems, looking at my own ability to solve my own problems, What these people do not seem to realize is what they're really looking for is found in Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can bring that true and lasting change. Jesus is the only one that can solve the problems uh, of this world. They don't need political change. They don't need societal change. Ultimately, they need spiritual change. And that only comes in and through Jesus Christ. And when you think about it, Think about these rebel movements. Christianity really is the ultimate rebel movement. You know you're all rebels in here today? Just look at you. Rebellious lot. 
You know why you're rebels? Because you live in this world. As Christians, we rebel against the devil. We rebel against this world that is dominated by sin. We rebel against the flesh that wants to sin. See, Christianity really is the true rebellion. The rebellion that needs to happen. The rebellion is everything that's wrong in this world. And it's a rebellion that can and only can happen in and through Jesus Christ. And yet people who see this need for change, change that really their heart longs for, and hear the gospel. And you think, well, we want world peace. Well, Jesus, he's the prince of peace. Oh, well, you know, no, I want a different kind of peace. You know, oh, I've got broken relationships. Well, you know, Jesus, if you follow Jesus and be obedient to Jesus, with the power that he supplies, he, you can mend those broken relationships. Oh, well, you know what? And why is that the case? Why in a world where people look at the world and think it's a mess, why do they reject the hope of the gospel? And it's because their heart longs for something greater than they do that change. The heart longs for sin. The heart longs for sin. I want to serve myself. Yeah, I want, sure, world peace, but there's a few things I want more than that. And rather than acknowledge and submit to God, man tries in futility to fix the problems of the world himself, not realizing that man can never solve the problems because man is the problem. And that's something we all need to recognize. The only way the problems that we see in this world will be dealt with is if we submit ourselves to God. And so the thing that our world needs more than anything, the thing that our nation needs more than anything, is the gospel. Is the gospel. It's only through the gospel that the world will really be turned the right way up. And so in verses 8 and 9, they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard uh, these things and so when they had taken security from Jason in other words a guarantee that they're not going to cause any more trouble they let them go and then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away to Berea and so we'll pick that up next week in Berea but the first thing that we see there the world turned upside down the world really turned the right way up why number one through the preaching of the gospel so the preaching of Christ and him crucified. Next week the emphasis will be on the hearing of the gospel and the importance of open minds and open hearts to receive the gospel. So the preacher has a responsibility, the hearer has a responsibility. So I've had my exhortation this week and you get yours next week. Because we'll pick it up in verse 10 next week. So let's pray. Father we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you Father, in the midst of chaos in this world, we have an anchor in the word of God. We thank you when the world does not know what to do, yet we know what to do, because your word is clear.
And so, Father, I pray that you would use each and every one of us, even this coming week, to bring the light of the gospel into a dark place. Whether that be in school, whether that be in work, whether that be at uni, wherever it might be. Lord, I pray that you will use us to shine that light of the gospel on darkened hearts and that you, by your Spirit, would do a great and a mighty work as you have promised to do, as your word is proclaimed. And so, Father, we do give you thanks. We do give you praise for all that you have done for us in Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we give you praise, honor, and glory today. In Jesus' name, amen.